I'm going to create a little uh, anticipation here. I'm, I'm not just going to play golf after service. In fact, I'm not going to play golf today at all. Um, I'm going to use this as a prop a little later on, let you kind of think about that, as well as the rope. Although I will say that um, when I was putting this out today, Cindy said, are you going to tie anybody up? Um, and I said, I, I thought, you know, I was going to tease her a little bit. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I... I'm going to invite some folks up and tie them up. I said, do you have any suggestions? And I'm just kidding, you know. And about 10 minutes later, she came back with a list. <laughs> no, actually, I'm kidding. Aren't I, Cindy? Yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> She's still got the list in her pocket, I bet. <laughs> okay. We've been looking at what we believe and the importance of what we believe. Today, we look at the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in heaven. We believe this body and this life is just a brief stopping off place. In 1998, Lee Strobel, you may know the name, but in 1998, Lee Strobel was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Now, Strobel was a graduate of Yale Law School. He was a lawyer. I'm not sure how he got into journalism, but became a very successful writer for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, a devout, um, loud, <laughs> obnoxious atheist. And then his wife came to know Christ. Came to know Christ in an evangelical church and and it really troubled Strobel. And, and so he thought, you know, this is, this is not going to work. I love my wife. And for us to be on two different places when it comes to this whole religion stuff is just, uh, it, 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 it really troublesome for me. And so he decided that he was going to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And he spent uh, months pulling the New Testament documents, hundreds and hundreds, by the way, of documents um, that uh, many of which were pretty much copied and di distributed, but those documents uh, of, of the first century, the letters of Paul, the Gospels, uh, other writings, and, and then he began to, to pull and do research on secular writings, like, for example, Josephus, the Jewish writer, who writes in the, about the first century and includes extensive writings about Jesus, his life and ministries, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the church. Um, Strobel, in writing the book, A Case for Christ, a journalist personal investigation of the evidence for Jesus, could not disprove the resurrection. And in fact, he says that there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than for George Washington being the first president of the United States. Now, for us, that sounds ridiculous. You know, how, that's ridiculous. But we're only 200 years from George Washington. Just imagine... Those Christians of the early first century and second century, 
who were faced with the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Oh, that we might. Oh, that we might see our Lord through their eyes. By, by the way, uh, Strobel said, you know, if I can't disprove it, then I need to be a part of it. And he gave his life to Christ, uh, converted and was baptized and joined his wife in living his life for Jesus Christ and actually gave up his position there, started writing Christian books and is uh, an incredible inspirational speaker. The resurrection, the resurrection is the fulcrum of faith. You know, fulcrum is that which we use and we, um, and, and basically kind of the image that I have is that the resurrection then is put upon the truth of the scriptures as, as the, the place of, of leverage and then the resurrection and the holy word of God is that which moves the unmovable in our lives. It is the fulcrum of faith. The resurrection is the axis, the center, the core, the central point of a Christian life. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then Christianity is just another ancient religion with its own particular form of morality and spirituality. The truth of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. Either Christ was raised from the dead by the powers of God or not. And if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is foolish, and we are to be pitied and self-delusional. But the Apostle Paul, the disciples, the early followers, the church that spread so rapidly around the Mediterranean, they were convinced of the truth of the resurrection. And it drove everything they did. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we look at the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, convince us, move us, pour out upon us the truth of your resurrection this day. And Lord, may you be with my words and may you hide me behind the cross so that all that I say would be your word. And for that which I misspeak or don't speak, oh, pray I, that you would clarify it and magnify it in our hearing. We come, O oh God, to hear your word today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's start out by looking at the, the passage that Cindy read for you, there from chapter 15. Chapter 15, in its entirety, is about the resurrection and also talks about our resurrection, what that, what that resurrection looks like, and I would encourage your reading of the entire chapter. But we're going to focus here on these verses in... Um, 12 through 19. Now, instead of making a case for the resurrection, Paul starts out here by, by basically saying, what if there were no resurrection? What if there were no resurrection? What do it mean if there wasn't? He says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised... 
then our proclamation has been in vain. The Greek word there, kinos, which is translated in vain, means more fully, listen to this, means more fully empty, vain, ineffective, foolish, worthless, false, unreal, pretentious, and hollow. In other words, preaching is useless. Now, I've spent a large part of my adult life studying, preaching, preparing, and the thought that all that time is wasted is pretty tough on me. Now, I, I do admit that, uh, and Doug will agree with this, you do this long enough, you're going to preach some stinkers, you know, and, and people walk out and they go, what in the world was he talking about today, you know, um, and, um, but I, I will say that uh, m- most people have been really nice, I say most, have been really nice, but I always knew that if I was a little bit concerned or felt like I just kind of, that, that just didn't work, I'd go over to my mother's house. My mother loved my preaching, or at least she said she did. Um, she always said, you know, no, Johnny, that was so wonderful today. Well, Mom, what did you hear me say? And she would say, Johnny, that was so wonderful today. <laughs> and so I'd go, my mother loves me, you know. And the thought that my preaching is empty, vain, ineffective, foolish, worthless, false, unreal, pretentious, and hollow is horrifying. Now, I I do believe sometimes preaching is useless. And and you may have heard some of those sermons. You may have heard some of those from me. Um, And here's how I define that preaching which is useless. Two qualities. Does the preaching call me to action or to change? And second, does it focus upon Jesus? Particularly the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the eternal gift of the resurrection. If those two things are present... Then, then the sermon can be read in a monotone, and I feel like this, that the word has been preached. And, and so to say that the, without the resurrection, that our preaching is in vain, Paul is right. And, and what Paul is doing is that he is, he is basically pointing to the power of the preaching of that day and the lives that have been changed by the speaking of the word and by, and by the, the sharing of, of the name of Jesus and how lives have been transformed. And he's basically saying, hey, how can this be so? If there were no resurrection of the dead, or of Jesus, then our preaching would be in vain. But uh, Paul would say, I don't see it. Then Paul turns to our faith. What would our faith be like without the resurrection? He says in verse 17, If Christians not be raised, your faith is futile. Now, twice Paul 
speaks to faith in these verses 14 and 17. Uh, he says, without the resurrection, then in, in 14 it says the same word, kinos, in vain. In other words, that our faith is empty, vain, ineffective, foolish, worthless, false, unreal, pretentious, and hollow. In verse 17, he uses a stronger word, a frightening word. It is the Greek word mateos, which is translated here, futile. More fully, it means unreal, ineffective, unproductive, without purpose, groundless, and even godless. Now, the problem that Paul is speaking to here is that there was no one within the Christian community that questioned the resurrection of Jesus. They did not question the resurrection of Jesus. They, they were a part of that evidence. They, were, they had heard from the eyewitnesses at his ascension. You know, they, had, they had heard from the disciples. They, had, they, they knew the fact, the evidence what they questioned was whether or not it made a difference. That's what they questioned. You know, does the resurrection really make a difference? Isn't it really about the way that we live? Which, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, we are called to a higher level of, of living. We are called to, a, to God's standard of love. You know, we are called to look at the future in a completely different way than the rest of the world. But it is the resurrection that gives us that perspective. So Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And he's basically asking the question, how can there be so much passion among the followers of Jesus? How, how can we see such lives change dramatically? How can we see this person who was this way, now they live in this way with such hope and determination and, 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 you know, he says, how can this be if there is not a resurrection? How can it be? And I think we all know the answer to that. How can it be? It can't. Christ was raised from the dead. And Christ offers that resurrection to us. And we cannot do this life or the life that is to come without Jesus Christ. That's just, that's, that's the basis. We cannot do it on our own. Now, that brings me to my golf club. Now, I know this is a stretch, so you got to kind of stick with me, okay? Now, th how many know golf or play golf? Okay, well, I'm going to give you a little lesson here. This is a driver, okay? And when you play golf, the first tee, you get to, you can tee the ball up, you know, and hit it, you know, um, 
most of the golf, uh, golf holes, you would use the driver because you want to get it down the fairway as far as possible so that you have a shorter shot into the green. It's really a stupid game, but it is fun. Um, you know, hitting a little white ball into a hole, you know, it's something just kind of crazy about it. But anyway, all right, I hadn't played golf in quite a while. I used to play golf quite often. And in my mind, I could hit the ball a long way back then. Now, I'm not really sure whether I could or not, but in my mind, I, you know, I could really hit it long. And so I've been really frustrated over the last year and a half because I'm not hitting the ball very far. And I've been really working at it. And so what I decided is, it's my driver. If I just had a lighter, better driver. John, you, did you go through the same thing? How many drivers do you have? 14, 15? No, I just, just kidding. <laughs> you just, you're with me though, aren't you? I mean, you know, if I just had a lighter, better driver, I could hit it farther. So last week, I went over to, to a place where they fit you. Okay, with different demos and stuff. They have this little monitor and this measuring deal. And he puts this driver. They didn't really have the one that I wanted. But I swung, and it was 78 miles an hour. Okay, which is not bad, but it's not real good either. I mean, 78 miles an hour is about, would produce a drive of about what I'm hitting now. And I'm going, this can't be right. I know that I used to swing at least 90, if not 100 miles an hour. Now, the pros hit up in the 150s and more. You know, and so I thought, okay, so I swung harder. 79. I kept swinging harder and harder. I did get one at 81 miles an hour. Okay? Um, but the harder I swung, the worse I made contact with the ball. At the end, I was missing the ball. I mean, literally just swinging and whiffing. But the, the monitor would measure my swing, you know. It would say 70 miles an hour, you know. I mean, I'm going. And the, the guy, bless his heart, he's watching me. And he says, you know, Mr. Allen, that is your name, isn't it? I said, yeah. He says, um, I'm not sure you really need a new driver. <laughs> he said, you know, if you would just relax and keep your eye on the ball, you'll be fine. And you'll do what you do. And it may just be so many yards. We do the same thing with our faith. We think, if I can just try harder, I can do this on my own. If I can just work harder on my faith, then I can, I can save myself. I can make myself righteous. I can, I can be the person that I want to be. And the harder we swing, the more we miss... We're not getting any better. I mean, does, does that make sense? There is only one way, and that is to, as the guy said, in terms of golf, focusing on the ball, to focus on Jesus. 
on, on the resurrection of Jesus. That is what gives us life. That is what gives us perspective. That is what opens up not only eternity, but this life. That's what Paul is trying to say. The resurrection, <laughs> the resurrection gives us a whole new perspective on life. And that brings me to the rope. I stole this from Francis Chan, by the way. Um, he used this as an illustration of eternal life. Okay? So you got to imagine. Now the, the rope only goes over there. I think it's like 50 feet long. Um, and, uh, but we're going to imagine that this rope just goes around and around the earth. That it just is millions and millions and millions of miles long. And that's eternity. That's what Jesus is promising us. That, I mean, once we go to be with Jesus, eternity. Resurrection. Now, I did mark off this little part here, okay? Have you seen, the, have you seen Francis Chan do this? Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, we got all this eternity. This is our life down on earth. Okay, we got this millions and millions of miles of eternity in this little bitty three-inch piece. And the, and the problem that we have is that we think that if we just work hard enough and save enough and do enough in these first couple of inches, that this last inch is really going to be good. I'm going to be comfortable. I'm going to have fun. Uh, get to play golf every day, you know, what, whatever. Um, without any consideration on the real life that is to come, eternity. When I entered the ministry uh, several years ago, I went back to my, uh, my high school reunion, my fifth year high school reunion. And I told them what I was going to do, and they said, you what? You know, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you, is this a joke that you're going into the ministry? They kind of knew me in high school, and so it, it was a joke to them. Um, I said, no, I'm really going to do it. And one of my high school buddies came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, um, you're wasting your life. He said, you know, there's a lot of things that you could do and make a lot of money and, and why would you want to waste your life? He says, that's really kind of not smart. And I thought to myself, you know, Mark is worried about this one inch. Okay? And, and I don't even want to say that I'm, I'm perfect. And I fall into this trap all the time. I mean, I, I look up my retirement <laughs> on a pretty regular basis, you know. You know, when do I get to start enjoying this one inch? You know, and it's a temptation that we have to face, we have to deal with in our lives. When what really matters is all the rest that is to come. And now I'm not saying that we should forget about this life. What I am saying is that see all of life 
through the perspective, through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus and the gift that Jesus gives to us in eternity. You know? I quoted Sue Smith at the early service. She and I were talking about this. One of our, we got a prayer group that meets on Friday by Zoom at 12 o'clock. And we were talking about judgment and um, a particular person that wouldn't believe in God because wouldn't believe in a God that would judge and condemn. And she said, you know, I tried to tell him that we, it's not God that condemns us. We condemn ourselves. That, and she said, I use the analogy of a bank account. That God has put this incredible gift, this eternity, this treasure in this bank account. And all we got to do is go to the bank and sign up for it. And yet so many people, even in the church, live in spiritual poverty. All because we're worried about that one inch. Where are you? I, I know that, you know, when I saw what Francis Chan did in his analogy, it, man, it just, it spoke to me immediately. I thought, oh my goodness. You know, I, I believe in the resurrection. I, I live for the resurrection. But am I, am I seduced by that one inch? Am I? So as I close, I got two questions for you. Two questions to consider. And we're going to go into the pause here in a few moments. And I invite you just to meditate on these two questions. The first is this. What have you done this past week that matters in light of eternity? Not, not for the one inch, but for all the rest. Now, I, 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 I'm not talking about going out and selling your, your house or, or quitting your job. I'm not talking about that I'll never be able to play golf again. But how do I see all of that, my possessions, what I do, my leisure, my vacation, in light of the resurrection? What's my perspective? And as I was working on this on Friday, I thought to myself, because I played golf on Thursday, I thought, you know what? Did I really think about my, my trip to the golf course in terms of Jesus? And I thought, no. I thought, you know, it, what would have happened I mean, would God have led me to somebody? Would God have given me the opportunity? I don't know because I, I failed to take that step. What have you done this past week that matters in light of eternity? And then second, what have you done this past week that will not be remembered in eternity? You know, when I stand before Jesus, I doubt Jesus is going to ask me, did you ever hit the golf ball 250 yards? I am so proud of you and that last inch of your physical life that you finally got that. No. He's not gonna, that's not going to matter. It's not going to matter, you know, whether SMU wins the national championship, which, by the way, will never happen. But anyway, but... <laughs> 
Do you hear what I'm saying? You know, what is it in our life that when we stand before the Lord, the King of Kings, that matters? So remember this. We don't do it on our own. We don't, we don't do it by our own effort. We do it by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, by receiving him into our heart, and transformation takes place. It changes the way we see, changes the way we hear, it changes the way we speak. It changes who we are and how we think about not just that one inch, but the rest of our life. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting is not just God's promise of what's next. It's the completion of God's healing of our brokenness. Even in death, we are a living hope. Paul closes his argument at the end of chapter 15 with these words. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hallelujah.